Hi, I'm Ben from the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, which is done by myself, my sister, and my father, where the genre of the movie is decided by the cast of a die. The categories are horror, drama, comedy, action, sci-fi and fantasy, animation, and musical. Also on occasion, we'll have a special episode dedicated to conversations with creators, directors, actors involved in the production of movies. Join us and see what movie we pick next. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. This is Steve. I'm joined with Ben. <coughs> excuse me, with Ben today. Um, sadly, Michaela was not able to watch this movie nor do the review with us because she has a fear of snakes and does not watch any movies where, if she knows ahead of time, that snakes are involved. But by luck today, we have my nephew Charles Kokowski. Charles, how you doing today? Hi, I'm Charlie. I'm a Steve's nephew, um, I'm doing pretty good. I just watched uh, House of the Gorgon for the first and a half time. Um, the, the first time I, I watched the first half and then I was doing homework and got sidetracked. But the second time was actually recently within the past half hour. I watched it with Steve and Ben and uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was invited onto this because I am a cinema studies major at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland. Um, I am on my fourth year on the long-term track uh, as a part-time student, full-time employee, and as of now, I'm going towards the documentary filmmaking track, but I have always been interested in narrative, and um, I know that my Uncle Steve is really into this genre, the, the B-movie stuff, and I'm interested in watching more more of the uh, style of film and learning more about the uh, the new, new age community that's coming about, and... Um, so yeah, I'm here to talk about this movie. Yes, and it's one of the things that um, helped us pick you, besides you should a cinema major, is that you have, going in, no knowledge at all about the um, movies that, this, uh, that this, this movie is riffing on or showing them special um, homages to and that kind of stuff. So you've never seen a Hammer film? No. And have you ever seen a Vincent Price film? I've heard the name, and I know what he looks like. So, that, so, folks, going in, he's going in cold to this genre in this film. And one of the reasons I wanted to have Charlie on doing this was because I think it, a lot of times we get stuck with all of us talking to each other that have seen these other films, and we pick up all these little hints and stuff, and we get a little smile on them, and we're drawn to it. That it's sometimes nice to get somebody who's not usually exposed to these films and get their input. And I know when I talked to um, Joshua Kennedy, the director of the, the movie, House of the Gorgon, he was he's very interested to hear Charlie's feedback because of that, like what um, somebody who's not normally into this type of film, and which we'll get to in just a minute. Um, we're going to see what's been going on with Ben. So, Ben, what's been happening with you since the last time we recorded? Um, I haven't been up to too much. Just the same old, same old. Living life, working at the library, doing lots of passports. <laughs> Uh, one other thing that I've done recently is watch the Sonic the Hedgehog movie with my dad, Steve. And we also watched 1917, and they were both very good. What have you been up to, Dad? Well, like Ben said, on uh, we, I saw Sonic the Hedgehog whip on which uh, we'll, we'll, him and I will do maybe a quick little mini-review mini of it later on for another episode, and also 1917. And um, both of them we enjoyed. 
and it was it was a time to spend time together. Everybody else in the family went elsewhere, so it, it was just him and I able to go to the movies and on President's Day and enjoy a couple of films that way. And today, when we're doing this, we're doing National Pet Day, and you might hear Milo in the background doing um, our little dog doing his little noise. Yes, you heard him bark. Um, that's that's Milo. So he might be in and out of this. I think he's trying to get a ball or something that's stuck underneath the couch. <laughs> yes, and he did watch the movie with us, so this is just his little bit of feedback. <laughs> All right. So what we're going to do now is we're going to play the trailer for House of the Gorgon. Then Ben's going to give us a summary, and then we'll start talking about our likes. Don't look. Shield your eyes. <laughs> For on the day you look upon them, you will surely die. House of the Gorgon. Why don't you let us alone? Get back on your train and leave us alone. Rumors circling around. Uh, Mysterious happenings at night, um, strange noises emanating from the dark. Leave Karlstadt. Leave now and never come back. Stay away from them. They mean you great harm. Starring Caroline Monroe as the Baroness, what was the sinister secret she hid? beneath her dark spectacles. Martine Beswick as her sister Uriel, malevolent and evil. You would sacrifice all that we've done merely to quench your innate desire oh, for violence. Oh, what if I did? Veronica Carlson as Anna, the one woman in the village of Karlstadt willing to stand against these angels of death. I can fight you. We can fight you. Christopher Neeme as Llewellyn, a man of faith, locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. If we leave them alone, maybe they'll leave us alone. Also starring Joshua Kennedy as the mysterious Dr. Pritchard. And introducing Georgina Dugdale, Gooey Film's latest star discovery, the Gorgon's most beautiful victim. See all of this and more when you visit the House of the Gorgon. We cast you out! Every unclean spirit, every satanic power, in the name and by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ! Well, Ben, why don't you give a synopsis of House of the Gorgon? So in House of the Gorgon, there are three characters who are traveling. It is Christina, Isabella, and her mom, Mrs. Banning. And they are traveling to go and meet the family of Isabella's fiancé, uh, Dr. Pritchard, who she is to be married to in the town of Karlstadt, 
which is like your traditional hammer horror small town of lots of creepy people. And along the way, there are a lot of eerie happenings when they first arrive there with the people in the tavern and then later when they first meet Julian, Dr. Pritchard, and lots of terrifying things happen along the way. All right. And because this movie came out recently, we are not going to spoil the ending of the movie, um, so we're going to try to be careful not to spoil that that point out there and just make sure reminding Charlie and Ben that. Um, the movie has a lot of Hammer veterans starring in it, and we'll talk about them at different times when we talk about our likes. Uh, the director is Joshua Kennedy. Um, he's directed a, a few films recently, um, Theseus and the Minotaur, and um, the St. Augustine Murders. I'm trying to remember right. I thought it was the St. Augustine Monster. St. Augustine Monster. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Thank you, Ben. Um, so and he's also done a lot of other films that are available on YouTube and things like that that you can go and follow along with on, during his college career and prior to that. So he's very prolific, and he has a lot of films coming out later this year and in the next year, like Cowboys versus Pterodactyls and stuff like that. And um, we also have an interview of Joshua Kennedy that will be airing after this episode. So we'll go into more detail about those things with Josh, which, uh, ironically enough, I recorded with Josh prior to this. That's why Josh knows Charlie's going to be here, but neither one of us knew what Charlie was going to say. So we'll start with Charlie then. Charlie, what are some of the things, give us one of the things you like about House of the Gordon. Well, I guess the mystery begins now. Um, I think, so it's, it seems like a very minute aspect of it, but I like the te- technical aspects of films, and to me the lighting was really, uh, really cool. I, I saw a lot of purple and green issues, and um, uh, some of the special effects, with, especially with the, the monsters and um, costuming and stuff like that. Um, there was There was audio throughout that, there seemed like a, a steady mood was set by like um I wouldn't call it a score but there was like a steady uh audio and then there was some of the folly or sound effects um really helped especially with um the jump scares I, I know there was one scene not to give it away but there was um a lot of like s- smacking and there was a door and there was um flashing it was just like it it like the it sped up the tempo of the scene and like kind of uh, added to the uh uh, not the suspense, but, like, the, the power of what was happening. So I think technically there was a lot of stuff I, I saw. And then coming from an aspiring amateur filmmaker who hasn't made anything yet and um, knowing all the all the um, complications that would come with it, I think it was very well executed. And from, from what you've told me, Steve, uh, uh, Josh has made a few films, like a decent amount for somebody our age. Um, so uh, I think it shows. Yeah, Josh has done, um, looks like uh, an IMDb, 18 different features. So it's um, The Fungus Among Us. Uh, the, other, the other couple I mentioned, The Alpha Omega Man. If anybody's ever seen um, the Charlton Heston movie, The Omega Man, it's, it's a riff on that with um, Josh playing the Charlton Heston role, done on a shoestring budget. <laughs> but it is it is enjoyable and that kind of thing. And he is um, very talented about taking a little bit of money and making it look like a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. 
is going on. And uh, one of the things I told Charlie was that he only had five days to film this, which is um, one of the reasons why, you know, certain things, like maybe he couldn't do certain things just because of timing and that kind of stuff. But yeah. we'll talk about that when we get to you on things that we thought could have been better. But, I mean, some of it just because of the lack of time. Yeah, I mean, that's – I can imagine that's a, it's a limitation. Um, I guess another thing you pointed out was him acting. He directed, wrote, produced, and acting, acted in these. Yes. And I think that that's a lot of hats to wear, and, I mean, you don't really consider that when you go into filmmaking, especially whenever you're on, like you said, a shoestring budget. You don't have the money to – money or even just, like, the – you know, the whatever. You can't really provide for a whole crew, so you have to really juggle all the responsibilities and – I think, considering that, it's it turned out really well. So, yeah, I think with him, his background and going into where he had to do the shots, which uh, the movie, the majority of the movie was filmed, if I remember, in the banquet hall at, of a hotel thing, and how he mapped it out in his mind and set everything up so they could go from shot to shot because he had to do things so efficiently mm-hmm. for the um, the lack of time that he had. It's not like. Um, some of these Hollywood movies where they go on for months, you know, you had, like we said, five days. So it had to all be um, ironed out and mapped accordingly. And it, so it's, it's pretty impressive that way. Ben, what are some of your likes? Um, I like the music that happened occasionally. It wasn't like every scene had its own song where some of the movie, some movies like Baby Driver would do that. But this one had music where it needed to be. Like, during the scenes where they're showing scenery, it had music to help it move through, or where it was something really intense going on, it had sharp notes and music. And I thought that added a lot to the film and helped you connect with the mood in the scenes. Um, also, like Charlie said, the the lighting was very eerie throughout the film. I don't think I had ever seen other films where there was, like, just this purple hue with green kind of countering off of things in the shadows which looked really weird and creepy and kind of set up the mood for a lot of the different scenes in it where eerie things happened or where characters discussed the happenings going on if you want to see a movie with color and cinema i have to i have to have you watch suspiria from 1977 the dario the genta film but one of the things you talk about the music, the composer was Reber Clark, and um, who tried to do a, um, a Bernard um, type style, which is basically the composer that was doing a lot of films and movies at that same time frame that they're looking at the the fifties through the seventies. So he was trying to do um, that that kind of uh, play or rift type thing on it. So it was another homage to was it was that a hammer specific uh, or just I guess that genre? But um, another thing you mentioned, they pointed out a lot was the acting and how a few or the th- three veteran female actresses that you um, knew from other films and you even met. I know you said at least one of them. I've met all four of all four of the main all four of the British actors, the three actresses and the actor. And he's talking about Caroline Monroe, Martine Beswick. Um, Veronica Carlson and Christopher Neem and um, Ben and I have met all four of them and they're very nice people and, um, and, and and they put you at such ease when you talk with them but it's nice seeing them getting new work and uh, 
know they weren't doing this for the money. They were doing this literally because they know Joshua Kennedy so well, and they wanted to work together and do this project. And you can just see that they're having fun with that. We're playing with, you know, working with each other and um, working with the script and doing this for Josh. Yeah, and a, when a lot of them talked about it afterwards or asked questions about it, they seemed very positive about the production and, like, they had enjoyed doing it and helping out with a lot of the different things that happened in it. Okay, and um, one of the things I did want to mention, I just remembered now, Bernard Herman was the composer that Reber Clark um, used to base his score on. And one of the things, when you listen to it at the very beginning, you can hear when they put up House of the Gorgon on the screen, the music sounds like House of the Gorgon, you know, type mm-hmm. going in the background. So he was doing that. Bernard Herman's done that before. And, of course, um, John Williams did that with Superman and things like that. So it's always sometimes nice when the composer is able to add that extra little touch, if you like that. And I really enjoy the music. And um, one of the things that we'll have down the road is my interview with Reber Clark, and we talk about different film scores, his work, other people's work. It's really kind of interesting. I was waiting until we got this movie done and the Joshua Kennedy interview before I could start hitting those other interviews that kind of tie in with this movie. Yeah, and that's not something I picked up on, but th- sometimes I'll watch movies more than once because then you can pick, like, the first time I feel like I'll view it just for the storyline and, like, have more of a broad, abstract uh, viewing experience. And the second time you really pick up on the, the nuance and, like, the technical aspects of it. Um, this is kind of off to it's off subject, but I would you guys go to enough um, conventions and stuff for I guess you would call them B movies and stuff, and it it seems like uh, Josh Kennedy is more of like a revivalist maybe in the sense that he's creating like bringing back the uh, the style and stuff like that. Is that something that's specific to him, or do you see more amateur filmmakers at these conventions? Maybe doing similar stuff. Or there, there are others, um, others who do things in a similar style, or make black and white movies. There's the uh, Christopher Mim and his Mimiverse. He's done a lot of movies that are based off movies that came out in the fifties, in particular, and early sixties. But his are not always hard. They could be sci-fi and horror, or a combination of the two. And um, he, he sometimes will do stuff that'll be here all family. Oriented, you know. Um, uh, he's also even did a musical where actually he didn't do it. They, they they took one of his movies and made it into a musical, Monster Phantom Lake. Mm-hmm. And um, so he's and he's come out with what twelve, I think twelve films at least, something like that. Yeah. And then there's the Cthulhu people that put out the black and white Cthulhu movies. Oh, the HP HP Lovecraft oh, yeah, the Society. The Lovecraft, yeah, yeah. And um, there's other ones too that um, small monster. Press, thinking that, um, but uh, I've, I've always been meaning to buy one of their movies. They have like the Mothman and things oh, like that. Oh, oh yeah, the ones that do like the local monsters for an area. Um, yeah, like the oh, small town monsters. Yeah, small town monsters. That's yeah. what they are. Yeah, small town monsters, and uh, so they d- they do make. So it's like um, rip their little thing has been like local monster things that they go into the area and that kind of stuff. From what I've read, I've I've been meaning to um, watch them, and some of their movies I think are on um, Amazon Prime, and but I was looking forward to still hoping that they're at this year's Monster Bash and then meet with them and talk with them and then um, pick a couple of movies up from them there and then watch them or review them down the road. 
I, I think I asked that because that's what attracts me to like this idea because, you know, Josh Kennedy and these other people you're talking about, they're catering towards their passions. They're not catering towards uh, s- selling to like a, a mass audience. They're they're passionate about the subject matter and they're passionate about their own projects. And I think there's a uh, something in- inspiring about that. I mean, like um, like you guys are, are very interested in the subject matter. It's not something very broad and um it's kind of cool to know that there's like a community that's reviving something that was once maybe more appreciated but it's still going on um so yeah i was just curious about that and how that's going yeah and that's for this podcast of movies we're not just the movies we're just literally any movie that's decided by the roll of a die you know so we roll the die and that picks the genre and we can pick the movies like inherit the wind which was our first one i would not consider that at all b movie and um stuff like that so there's some of the movies we do, yes, would fall in that B movie category, and um, but but you know some of them aren't. And as the, as time goes by, it's going to be more diversity in the movies that we have mm-hmm. in there. Like we have um, um, coming down the road, no deposit, no return, where we have Tracy Morris join us from another podcast, and that's a, a Disney comedy from the seventies. Oh wow! So yeah. it's 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 so it's not even a like a horror film or any of that stuff around here. It's just movies that. Whoever rolls and gets to pick the movie and in the genre, it, it's something that they like. So uh, my theory is if you like that movie, then when we do a review of it, we always have one person that at least likes it. Whether the rest of the people that are doing the review like it or not, it's always one of those things that will they or won't they or and that kind of stuff. And we've had, um, you know, Kale and Ben have had some movies they've yet to rec- have to, did not recommend. Um, I have yet to have one come out there where I have not recommended it. Though I will tell audiences, there is one that we have recorded where, yes, I finally have a movie where somebody picked where I did not recommend it. Was it Wuchi Demon Slayer? Oh, you have to wait to find out. <laughs> and why does we haven't done the movie yet? We're still waiting for Mikhail to watch it so we can record it. Oh, uh, the pressure's on. Yes. It's at least getting one recommendation. From? From me. From you? From me. Five stars out of five. Maybe I'll have to join too if if there's an open invitation. Oh, oh you, yes, you, you definitely. Come, yeah, you can come down and join us because I mean, Charlie lives literally right next door to us. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not a long drive. <laughs> we share the same driveway. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, you didn't drive down here, did you? No, no, no. I I took the was it like a hundred yard hike, maybe? Yeah, <laughs> hundred yard hike because. I know some family members will drive back and forth between the houses, and I'm just like, it's just 100 yards. Yeah. Just walk it. <laughs> All right, but let's get back to likes of this movie, House of the Gorgon. Um, we did talk a little bit about the actors. You are talking about the actor differential, um, and I said about uh, with Carolyn Monroe, Martine, Veronica, and Christopher Neem. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're having people that have been acting for decades. And some of them came out of retirement for this, but still they've had a lot of acting experience. And I think – Charlie's mentioned that you can notice a difference yeah. in, in that. And I'd let you continue on with that. I mean, I know at least with the, the there's a couple in there, the um the antagonists, um, these two women. It's just watching them I can tell that they were really like enjoying that what they were doing and their acting and um I think they, they had a more professional, uh, refined um a- acting like their their uh, acting presence, I, I guess, because of all the experience and m- maybe just the prior knowledge going into it was a factor. But I, I could see that they were really uh, appreciative and really engaged into their roles and enjoyed it. So, um, yeah. 
What did you think of Father Llewellyn, Christopher Neve? Father Llewellyn. Um, he seemed very, uh, I guess creepy, but it didn't seem like it was intentional. Um, he seemed very distraught and conflicted. Um, recently I watched The Exorcist, and there was a, uh, there's a priest in there, of course, that's the natural correlation, but it was the same thing. Like, he was very troubled by the, uh, paranormal activity that was happening and it was like uh it was going against his beliefs of like you know the the divine uh holiness and um, just the nature of the positive world around us and i guess there was a good character study in that but um i think as far as his act acting i think he executed it pretty well and he said christopher neem is that the director or no, that's Nim. That's the, uh, the other yeah, guy. You're you thinking about Christopher Mim. Yeah, that, Mim. Was, yeah okay. that was the director. So it's not the same Neem guy. It's a diff- totally different person. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, one Christopher Mim lives in Minnesota, and Christopher Neem is from the Yukon. And I watched <laughs> the. You let me borrow the uh, the creature of the black. The, the monster the, from Phantom Lake. Monster, yeah, that that one I've watched and really enjoyed too. Yeah, we'll have to do a review of that. We'll bring you in for that one. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed Father Llewellyn, and um, I, I felt. You know, he played the broken priest. I, the only thing I felt, I wish he had more background, like, you know, a little more fleshed out. But, again, he had a lot of characters there in a short period of time. And I think, you know, I, I wish there would have been maybe, like, a few more, like, maybe at least one more scene, you know, um, with, with Father Llewellyn, um, what, what he was going through. Yeah, and it, I know what you're talking about. Um, Sorry, Ben. Um, in, in the writing class I took this last semester, uh, a professor warned against, um, not that it's indicative of any mistakes, but a professor warned against about just dropping a character in, into space without having any context. And um, you can maybe you can remind me where he appeared, but it, it, yeah, it didn't seem like there was any real like precursor to how... Uh, he was in the beginning with the opening scene with the wedding, okay. and then he was in the bar scene, or tavern scene, when the, they show up, and then of course he's interspaced throughout and but it seems like when the wedding and this is the very beginning you know so i don't think we're giving anything away to people um by talking about this particular scene because it's yeah. it's literally i think before the opening credits even start first shot first shot <laughs> yeah, on the screen it's the yeah. first scene yeah and uh he's already realized that there, there's stuff wrong so i wanted to know what happened just like prior to that because it's obviously this has been going on for a while and it's something that's like broken his spirit, and that's the part I'm wondering about. That's the, the part I'm a little curious about. Like, and it could have been just in a, a like a little exposition from dialogue or whatever um, from him. Yeah, maybe it ended up on the cutting room floor. I don't know. I could have been when he maybe he, he could have been praying at the church and talking about. I wish I would have had the strength back at this time when this first started, and mm-hmm. and he talks a little bit about that. Something, or maybe it's just because I like Christopher Neem. I wanted him to have more. You know, it's yeah. you know, it's it's it, it could be that. What do you think, Ben? Well, they did put a lot in the film, and it was only shot in five days, so there was only so much they could do. But I would have loved to have more scenes with Father Llewellyn and Carl, the tavern keeper, because Carl seems to be a much more important character than you would like. Going into it, he just appears in all these scenes towards the end of the film, and he's only in like a couple scenes in the beginning and I'm always wonder like what's up with this guy <laughs> yeah Carl the the humpback with no 
hum yes yeah that discernible hum <laughs> yeah that, that struck me as odd too um maybe that was a casting or costuming issue but um i, gu- I guess to what you're saying about the the barkeep and whatever I, sometimes it's hard to uh maintain the balance of giving each character a certain amount of depth while also um you know like having a distinguished main character and you know like having the whole protagonist antagonist lead and then um i mean i'm not, I wrote a uh, script last semester that I wasn't proud of, and I, I think it's because I made the mistake of having side characters that started to become fleshed out and then just dropped off, or they just weren't fleshed out enough, or, like, I just had a lot of trouble finding that balance and having them be a main factor in the movie, and um, I could see where in making a movie that would be an issue. Um, yeah. And, and the reason I said some of his scenes might have ended up on the cutting room floor, sometimes it is fleshed out in the script, but then for pacing or editing or for whatever reason, um, that ended up being cut. And then it leaves, you know, they refer back to something else. I'm not saying it happened in this movie, but I'm saying in other movies where they refer back to something else, and then you're just like, that didn't happen. And then, then you find out when you get the Blu-ray or whatever, you see the deleted scenes, and you're like, oh, that was why it would, would explain that, but... And a lot of times when, the, when you learn the director do their commentary, they usually cut it because of time, and uh, which sometimes, if they're not careful, could cause problems. And then other times it could be because of multiple script writers, which in this case you have one person's vision, you know, because the writer is the director, so it's you don't usually you're not going to have that issue because you have that same person, that same vision going straight through. And I, I think that's the best thing about having a, a production that is centralized over one director, producer, writer, because then you realize you have the, the purest vision of the story. You don't have other people like interjecting their uh, way that they want it done or anything. It, it's, you know, if there's any good things or bad things about it, all the weight's on the one person, which I'm sure for that person is very stressful, especially under the time constraints and uh, financial constraints, but also, I would imagine if I were that film producer, I would be proud being able to say I made this movie on my own. You know, like it, I was the main contributor. So. Yeah, exactly. And Ben, what other likes do you have? Um, I think I'm all out of likes that I can think of right now. Um, well, one anything big that you guys wanted to add. One big like I want to say, and I think she she stole a lot of the scenes that she was in, was Veronica Carlson playing the the mom and the fiance because she was given, of course, when you steal, she was given a lot of the humorous lines um, or humorous some um, physical parts, you know, going through, and um, and I felt you know that those are things that were really nice to see, you know, because uh, the movies that I've seen Veronica Carlson in. I don't really get. To, I've never really seen to do any comedic work. So this is like my first time seeing her do something involving that timing and those other issues going on. And she was able to, you know, do a very good job. It was just like with the the, the, the voice, the physical, the emotions, and the other stuff. And it was so. And again, a lot of times when you have the, the person with the comedic lines, they're going to steal the scenes. I mean, it's it's every movie. You know, it's yeah. they're going to draw everybody's attention to them. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I agree. I, I guess as far as um, sorry, dead air. Um, so thematically, I, w- I was wondering, like, you w- you were telling me about the um, so the Gorgons, and then you have Medusa, and um, 
Perseus. Perseus and all that. I was wondering how, so it was kind of uh, ambiguous in my mind. How, how exactly does that fit in? And then maybe like some messages that this um, movie wanted to make or. Yeah. Um, when, when Charlie was watching the movie and with us this evening, uh, there's the dinner scene. And uh, Georgina Dugdale's character, Isabel Banning, is talking about the Greek myths. And she's mentioning people like Zeus and so on. And then she says Perseus. And, of course, the Baroness, played by Carolyn Monroe, um, when she hears the name Perseus, she starts to get really angry, trying to hold it in, but she's using her powers to strike at Isabel. And um, eventually she lets it subside. And Charlie had no idea why, why would that, what, what's that, why was she angry? And I explained to him that, well, Perseus slayed Medusa, who is the sister to the Gorgons, the other two. And, um, and that's why they would be upset because they look at him as just somebody that killed their sibling. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, the, the people that are evil never look at themselves as evil. They just look at themselves, this is what I need to do to exist and, and to sustain myself. And, uh, and then he was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, but, he, but if you don't know that going in, then that whole little part could be lost on you. They do mention it at the end, but it doesn't help you with that scene early on. You know, I mean, it, it, unless you remember, you're like, oh, now that makes sense. But it's, it's way later when they, when they tie it all together. On that, you could say it's like a throwaway thing or whatever, or an extra little line to tie in with other things that happened prior which this movie has lots of. Mm-hmm. It either ties in with mythology, other movies, particularly Hammer movies, Vincent Price movies, that kind of stuff. And if you're a fan of those type of movies, you will have things with repeated viewing to pick out in the movie, in, in the background, or of dialogue that they say. Um, yeah, I, I would say along those lines, there's um, some. Com- there's like a lot of complexity to this. Um, so right now I'm taking a, a film analysis class on Alfred Hitchcock, which I actually had last night and um in the first week we discussed the difference between mystery and suspense mystery being what's going to happen and then suspense being i know what's going to happen but when will it happen um i I noticed there was some suspense especially towards the end um and then i I guess throughout there were mystery i don't i don't know if you could mention that or even like how good that was executed um well, I guess we can mention it was exe- you can talk about its execution without maybe giving plot points away because you don't want to give away the ending. But yeah. but you're saying basically it was it reminded you of some Hitchcockian work the way they tied things together from Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, it, broadly there was um there was definitely suspense throughout. You know, um there were su- supernatural components that I wasn't really sure where they originated from. I guess because I didn't really understand the context of um. Like like you said, the the Gorgons and Medusa, but um, just what was causing any disturbances in the environment or what was going to happen, I, I definitely felt some suspense. And I guess the mystery aspect came in where, um, for me, just wh- where it was originating. Um, and I, I think in both regards, it was pretty well executed. Um, yeah. yeah, there was another thing you were referring to from your film studies. And uh, you talked about during the movie, during the one scene where it was the, the three characters were talking, and you were saying that Hitchcock used to do it that the way that Josh did it, 
but l- there were people that didn't like it at the time when Hitchcock was doing it. Yeah, unfortunately, I forget the term, but I, I believe it was whenever, um, what well, it was the one Gorgon. She had the glasses and she was at the dinner table. Yeah, the Baroness Carolyn Monroe. The, the Baroness. It was during that scene. Um, so in, Hitch- in Hitchcock films, instead of in a typical film where if if me, um, Ben, and Steve were talking, we would shoot this conversation three times. You know, once with a wide angle once over Ben's shoulder, and then once, let's say, from a top-down, but we would repeat the same lines three times and record three times. Whereas in a Hitchcock film, Steve would say a line, and we would shoot a close-up, and then we would cut that, and then we would all say a line, and it would be a wide angle, and we'd cut that. We wouldn't keep repeating it three times. It would just be we would record each line separate and then keep it going. And then I, I guess in that scene, it, it felt like, there wasn't an overlap in the conversations on screen. Like I didn't hear the voice or I didn't see the same people. So I was wondering if Josh maybe for the effect or the same time shot it in a segmented way where it was, I'm going to shoot these people talking and then cut it and kind of block it out instead of, um, you know, just shooting the same scene from different angles. Um, So I thought that was interesting. Maybe I interpreted it that way because I recently learned about it and I wasn't aware of it, but I thought that would have been a, cool approach to, to filmmaking in general. I mean, so, yeah. Josh, if you're listening to this, uh, feel free to leave comments on Facebook or whatever to let us know if, if Charlie was right about that or or um, if he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I really have no idea. <laughs> you know, that way, you know, so people will know, since obviously um, you, you would be the one that would know more than anybody else. <laughs> yeah. um, otherwise, I, I would say... Both, both Carolyn Monroe and uh, Martine Beswick, they're like I would have to say, they both really enjoyed, and I really enjoyed them playing the villains. Uh, the two of them had good chemistry together, which you could tell because they're good friends. And um, it was nice to see them just go there and just, just be evil. And as with Charlie said, with the lighting going on, on it really helped invoke that evil vibe. As they were trying to portray, and it it, it was really good, and and and, and there was really th- there's nothing. I don't think there's really a lot of negative to say about any of the main actors or actresses at all in the film. I think they all, except maybe for the lack of a hump on the humpback. <laughs> <laughs> but what are some things that we felt that they could have improved on, like the jo- like that could have been done better in the film? And then Ben, we'll start with you. Um, I would have liked a little bit more of a like a cohesive point of viewing, like one character that we kind of followed or something. I kind of just like that in films in general. Although I like, I did, I did enjoy this film, and I enjoy films that where it doesn't like have one definite point of or like one character that you follow through the whole thing. And it did follow the same character relatively closely throughout the whole film. But I felt like if it had just followed one character as they went through, that I might have enjoyed it a bit more. So you would have liked it better maybe if um, Isabel was the more of the point-of-view character in, in, in more in the movie than she was? Yes. It, it, it's funny. Bec- no, 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 because uh, I'm going back to Hitchcock because it's in my mind. Um, the first three films we watched in Hitchcock, I, I mentioned in a discussion post online that it seemed like the main character – was a female, uh, independent and strong, but also in distress, and she always took the center of the screen and was the, the central focus. Um, 
So yeah, I, I agree with you, Ben. That maybe like like imagine in Psycho, the I forget her name, but the main character is uh, the central focus. Um, and then the other part that Hitchcock talks about is pure cinema, which I thought about watching this. And pure cinema is um, so so. Imagine in the movie Halloween, you have uh, Jamie Lee Curtis hi- hiding from uh, Michael Myers. That there's no dialogue. There's no real interaction. You're just watching the events happen on the screen. So maybe in this movie, you know, um, if uh, if Josh's the fiance, if his character was maybe being affected by the supernatural, and it w- if it was just shown through the acting and throughout any dialogue, maybe that would add to some of the suspense, or even just visually could um, change it a little. So. That's true. It would have been nice to. Give them that like that gradual mm-hmm. turn, you know, and instead of going like flicking the switch type stuff. Um, I think part of that again is that five days of shooting. You know, I think if you had had ten days, I think some of these things that I'm going about to bring up and you guys have already brought up would be addressed. And and mine is just uh, a little more with each character, just a little more done differently, like an extra scene or two um, where the characters are together. And again, I think. The, the main culprit, and you know, is is the, the lack of time and money, you know, and that's that's always like a a young filmmaker's bane is I, I just if I had one more day, and I think he probably still wishes. Uh, I think every person that's ever done a film, all the directors, always want to keep tinkering with it and making it better because they never think their thing is good enough. They always want to work on it. Even Orson Welles said he would never want to watch Citizen Kane because he was like, ah, I could do that better, and people think that's the greatest film. Um, so it's. I think the creator themselves are always tormented souls in that way, where like I could have done this or that, and and that's just the way it's always going to be. I think for the vast majority of creators, some of them, you know, don't act that way, but I think most of them do. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, so, so you said about the the five day thing, which is like a constraint that I have to keep reminding myself because I would imagine if I tried to make a movie a movie in five days, it wouldn't be this uh refined um i know here in maryland i don't know if they have it said josh is from texas but here in maryland they have a film festival called the 72 hour film festival which is where um there's like five or so crews that make a movie in 72 hours you know start to finish um and i've heard that that's very stressful um actually i had a a friend of a friend who was in that recently and um so yeah it's just a reminder of like how difficult filmmaking can be especially um, in the amateur level well and of course you go to those film festivals to make a name for yourself and there we go then you make a name you're able to get more money mm-hmm. and then you can they go to the bigger productions and uh, in maryland of course one of the famous ones movies ever with virtually no budget i think it was like ten thousand fifty thousand it was that it was a minuscule budget it was the blair witch project mm-hmm. which then went on to make tons of money Especially if you it can, if you do it as a if you look at the budget it had, and then you multiply it out, it's you know I think it made like over a hundred million, and it was like uh, like I said less than I think it was like ten thousand or twenty. It was it was a small budget. Well, that that was perfect marketing though because that was right in the internet boom, and then they advertised it as like this is real, so they just hit the sweet spot. Yeah, that that must have been a great feeling to be a part of that production film. And then they had, like, that one spawned, like, other movies after it, too, that ended up all making money, having no budgets. Yeah, the whole found footage genre, like, uh, was it Paranormal Activity? Cloverfield. Cloverfield, yeah, just 
Yeah, just kind of like all exploded. It's a cash cow. I mean, it's not it's not great filmmaking, but it uh, makes money. Or is it great filmmaking? I, I, I mean, I'm not talking about great like in the greatest of films, but the creativity to come up with and how to make it. Oh, I love them. They, they entertain me. I love uh, Blair Witch. I like, um, was it Cloverfield? Yeah, Cloverfield. Cloverfield, yeah. Um, oh, there's a bunch. Like, what is there? Like, um, one set in Russia. What is it? Ch- the Ter- the Chernobyl Diaries. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah that yeah. one's creepy. Yeah. You know, and and things like that. So, I mean, there, are, there I think there's like at least a couple of hundred out there. Um, most of them are probably not even worth watching. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just like, <laughs> but I mean, you think about it, there's thousands of movies that come out every year, and, 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 and sad to say is most of them just they're probably not that great but having said that any filmmaker and crew able to get their film out and produced that 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 itself is just an accomplishment i mean either whether it gets received well by the public or not that that's as you said it depends on the timing if you hit it just if you hit the market at just the right time bam you got a super hit and next thing you know you're you're a big shot but now, what your next film will be able to sustain that work? That's you know, it's always tough when you fall when you come out like those guys did hitting a home run. It's hard to keep hitting home runs. I mean, not all of us are Steven Spielberg, and even Steven Spielberg doesn't always hit home runs. Yeah, Ready Player One. Hey, I liked Ready. Player I liked one. it, but it, it it wasn't a box office smash. That's true. It was very very different from the book too. Yeah. Well, Ready Player One made a lot of money. Maybe it did. I've heard a lot of negative stuff about it. You know. He made money. I think the negative stuff is mostly based on people who had read the book, yeah. because it was, it was like a much more watered down, worse version of the book. AI is what I was thinking of as of, of, of a Steven Spielberg oh, film. I, lo- I loved AI. That didn't do well. Okay. You know, as I'm saying, it did not hit the public. Not whether we like it or not. It's just whether it hit the public. Like I like 1941, but that did not do well in the box office. But is that the um, the World War Two one? The comedy? Yes. With the, what's his name? Jim Belushi. Jim Belushi, yeah. Oh, can't and wait to do a Jim Belushi. Thing. And uh, Bill Murray, right? No, I don't think Bill Murray. Uh, it's been a long time since you're I've both seen looking it. at me, and I have no idea. I don't know. It's, <laughs> been a, it's, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I mean, I know Jim Belushi's in it, and I know it was directed by Steven Spielberg. After that, <laughs> I mean, it's been it's been thirty years or whatever since I've seen this film. <laughs> I think it takes place in the forties. That's about it. Well, it takes place, I think, in nineteen. 19- Forty-one. <laughs> it's pretty precise, yeah. Just, just like nineteen seventeen takes place in I don't know nineteen seventeen. It's some Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four is going to take place in what year, Charlie? Twenty twenty. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see it, but the old man is face. <laughs> For those those of us that are over a certain age, when we all die out, these people are taken over. We're all doomed for what the future is going to hold. <laughs> but no, nevertheless, let's go to our recommends because we're really going off on tangents here. Yeah. Um, we'll start with Ben, and then we'll go to Charlie, and then we'll go to me. Ben, do you recommend House of the Gorgon? Um, I would give it a medium recommend. Yeah. Going recommend. off of your number system, huh? Going sw- switching it up. Well, there wasn't like a strong little thing in this one that I could theme it off of. There's no like Crazy cats killing Vincent Price like in Tuma Ligia. It's like we could use snakeheads. Snakeheads. I thought about that, but and they're not in a whole lot of the movies. So I decided to go with uh, medium recommend. Almost a strong recommend. I'm going to put it on a medium because I don't know if it would appeal to everybody. Like it, it's kind of a niche film where if you like 
older horror movies or Hammer films or a lot of more classic British films, it would be more appealing versus modern, like, Michael Bay blowing everything up for us. Yeah, that's right. Michael Bay is a director. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Charlie. Um, This is the one everybody's been anticipating. Josh, will he... I mean, he's dropped Hitchcock so many times talking about your film that I think that you must be related to Hitchcock. So let's see (laughs) if he recommends it or not. All right, stay tuned to the next episode for the answer. <laughs> um, no, I, I agree with Ben, actually. Um, it, it caters to a certain audience um, com- coming from somebody that hasn't had much experience in that, that genre and going into it. I really enjoyed it. And not only has it made me want to see more of Josh's movie, but I know Uncle Steve talks about certain movies, like uh, what was the one you were saying, Dracula in 1970. 1972 AD. Yeah, which I, had, I thought he was making it up. <laughs> and uh, honestly, like, I, I don't believe that exists, but I, I want to see it. And um, What year do you think that movie came out, Charlie? Ooh, I feel like the obvious answer is 72, yeah. 72, so. I believe so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, movies in that, that genre and then uh, Hammer, I would recommend it for people that like that. And also I would recommend it to people that are maybe aspiring filmmakers who um, haven't made anything. Like, uh, like myself, um, maybe who, who just want to see how you can make a film with a small budget, you know, like just watching it. I think you, you, uh, you know, you did some things that made it look like a, it was a higher production value than maybe you could have afforded. Um, like we keep mentioning the, the time constraints and even the location constraints um, were a big factor. So I, I think just it, it appeals to people that, like the type of movie and then people that want to make not only that type of movie, but movies in general. And um, just one, an example of that. So, yeah. There you go, Josh. The average person <laughs> likes your movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, just before I get my recommend, one thing I was negligent to say when I said snakeheads to Ben, it came back to me. The special effects for the heads, for the snakes and the heads. Um, Mitch Gonzalez did those, and I thought they were – done really well especially again considering the budget and if and charlie's never seen it ben has seen <laughs> the gorgon which is based off of and charlie there's a major motion picture the gorgon came out in hammer i'll have to get it for you to watch it mm-hmm. and you compare those snakes to these snakes and i'm telling you these snakes win all the time every time <laughs> and because and, and, the other ones oh my lord <laughs> yeah, it's like a jaws puppet versus a cgi jaws Unfair, like the uh, mega, mega, the meg. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way: the snakes and the gorgon don't move. They really don't move, all. and they like. No, I think their heads like snap to the side or something. I don't know what it is. I mean, it's just they not worth paying attention to. But these snakes were done well enough where Josh didn't have to worry about showing them multiple times. Mm-hmm. Where in the other movie they show them once, and and it's it's very underwhelming. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it is very. It 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 really impacts the movie <laughs> in a not a good way. Where that, these snakes impact be. the movie in a very good way. And so, congratulations again to Mitch Gonzalez for doing the special effects there. Um, I highly recommend this movie because obviously, as, as these two guys brought up, I am the target audience. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think the average person would like this movie. You know, it's just it's one of those you can sit in and enjoy. Um, you know, if, if so, if you like horror, suspense film, gothic type films, 
you're, you're going to enjoy this movie. And I never would have thought, like Charlie mentioned, that for somebody that who's up and coming, this give it's, it's instead of always watching the Hitchcocks, the Spielbergs, the Orson Welles movies, watch other people that are pretty much your same age. Josh is like 24, I think. Um, going through and see what he's doing, and and you can sit the idea. It's like, oh, he can do it. I can do it. And it's just a matter of having the the gumption to go through and just as you hit these hurdles to keep getting over them and finding that way to do it and have that tenacity, which I think Joshua Kennedy has. You know, it's just because he's done, like I said, tons of movies. Also does theater productions. I, I don't know how the guy – I don't think the guy sleeps um, at all. <laughs> but somehow he gets all these things done. So I think it's three recommends for House of the Gorgon. And like I said, our next episode will be the interview with the man himself, Joshua Kennedy. And we'll talk about this movie and his other films and that kind of stuff and some things that he has coming out down the road. And we also have interviews that will be coming out later with Reber Clark and Mitch Gonzalez. So we have pretty much like some of the creative teams there that's going on. And those, uh, those two gentlemen are also involved in other films besides Gooey Films Productions. Um, Charlie, thanks again for helping us out, filling in for Michaela since she has a snake hatred. Yeah. Anytime. I mean, as long as you're willing to pay the cab fare for the uh, hundred yard journey, then I'll come down. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're you're pretty cheap. We gave you a couple of glasses of water, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you, you seem to be, you know. But the thing is, is what I like about having, like I said before, is that you're coming in with a different perspective, and I, that's one of the things I like with having Ben and Michaela with me. It gives different ages with her. Of course, we have different sex. You know, and um, that kind of thing. But it's nice to have that perspective. So people that aren't always in my group, like late 40s, the 60s, um, aren't always talking about like, oh, yeah, like these movies we've all seen. And sometimes you get stuck in that little bubble and you forget that there's people that are older and younger than you and, and, and they're going to have different tastes and, and, and um, how they enjoy these movies. And I think it's by having that communication you can realize um, what movies are really hitting different people. And again, we're only a small, small group. And there's a lot of people that have different opinions than us. So otherwise, Ben, why don't you take us out? Uh, This has been the end of another episode of the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. We would like to remind you that all sound used during our production that was recorded originally by us is our own personal property and cannot be reproduced anywhere or used without the permission of the members of the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. Thank you very much. And again, please feel free to follow us on Facebook and leave comments there. You can also email us at diecastmoviereviewpodcast at gmail.com. And um, and also you can follow us, um, you can leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.